Good morning. Great to see everybody this morning. Well, to begin this morning, a um, little bit of a story for you. Uh, my dog, or my dad, I don't know why, but I'm just, I'm feeling it this morning. I'm going to need some extra prayer this morning. My dad has a dog. There we go. We're off to a good start. A dog named Bear. He's this little bitty thing. You could hold him in your hands. He is a mix between, uh, what is it all? Um, A Shih Tzu, a Pug, and a Yorkie. We call him a Sporky. And he's a great dog. He, uh, they got him when I was halfway through college or so a couple of years ago, and so he's still fairly young. He's, he's getting there, but he's a fun dog. He's energetic. He's got that terrier in him, so he just runs in circles just constantly just to get that energy out of him. He's great. He's wonderful, great with kids. Couldn't ask for much of a better dog. However, when my family began to get a little bit bigger and my sister and her husband began to have kids, this dog found an unforeseen enemy in these screaming, crazy, running around toddlers. And there would come points when the dog is in the living room and we're all sitting there and um, right now my, uh, my nephew Bennett is his name. He would um, see the dog, and it's something there and exciting, and so he'd get really excited. He'd wave his hands. He'd, 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 scro- he'd scream very loudly, and he'd go towards the dog. Like, this is great. This is fun. We get to play with this thing. The dog, however, has a very different interpretation of what's happening. And you watch it, and you're like, oh, this is funny. This is entertaining, you know? That's what dogs are there for, for our entertainment. So this is great. Only there would come points when the dog would find itself in a corner. And little Bennett still doesn't recognize what's happening, and so he'd still go towards the dog, and then this dog would, something would change, and the dog would get scared. It would get concerned, it'd get a little bit more desperate, and there's been a couple of times where it's began to growl at little Bennett. And that happened both to my, my, or the older niece, Nora, and then to Bennett as well when they were both in that age. And so we've, we've gotten really good at, okay, when the dog, when this is happening, you pull the, get the baby away, give the dog away out, let the, the dog go and run off. But a great dog, a kind dog, a nice dog, a sweet dog, but under the right circumstances, under the right pressure, can do very mean things. I think in many ways we are similar. I look around in this room and I see many people, many of you I know personally, kind people, nice people. Some of you that I don't know, that's okay, I can only assume You care about people. You want to be nice to people. You want to show love to people. But many times when we feel cornered, when we feel concerned, when we feel like our back's against the wall, when we have difficulties and trials and hurts in life, we can turn into different people. We can do things that as we even right now, can look back on 
that we can regret. We all can think of an example in our lives of a time where you did something because you were pressured, because you were stressed, and you said, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. I bring all of this up because we are nearly finished with this series on 1 Peter. And if we are to think of what's going on in Peter's mind as he's writing to this group of Christians, they're not in the best of places to succeed. We've mentioned multiple times Peter is writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who were going through different forms of persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. Arrested, tortured, beaten, even killed for their faith. And Peter's nearing the end of this letter, and he's kind of gotten to this point in the letter where it's the, okay, I'm running, running short of information, running short of time. Okay, just got to throw out these important pieces of information. Because he knows that this is a big group of people that has a lot of pressures on them, that all have the Spirit of God in them because they're the church. And yet when even Christians or otherwise are put under the right kinds of pressure, we can, we can make a lot of mistakes. And so he's issuing these sorts of final warnings of, by the way, these are some of the, the, those gut reactions that you may feel each and every time you go through some amount of suffering or trials or persecution or heartache. Be careful. That's what we're going to be going over today. That's what the final part of 1 Peter is, at least in, from what I am Seeing. And so that's kind of how I'm characterizing the message today. For those, by the way, go ahead and open your Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're at the end of the letter, so if you just go to the end of the letter, you're going to be in a pretty good spot. But we're going to specifically be in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Please open your Bibles there today. Allow me to read the entirety of the passage. Oh, it's actually 5, 6 through 14. Huh. Man, it, is a, it has been a long weekend. Um, let me read the passage to you in its entirety, and then we'll break it down a little bit. Starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. 
As we've mentioned nearly every time we've preached on 1 Peter, many of you who have heard the messages, have, we've said this multiple times, 1 Peter's main theme that we've been going through is holy living in the midst of suffering. You've been listening well. Holy living in the midst of suffering. is that What that means is the ways that we grow closer to God, grow in our holiness, grow in our relationships with God, is in many ways through the events of suffering in our lives. And the people that Peter's writing to are encountering a lot of suffering, a lot of pressure, a lot of trials. Some of them similar to us, some of them very, very And in these, he gives his final warnings at this part of the letter. I see a couple of different warnings here. I found, Pastor John mentioned this earlier, I found five specifically. And they're easy to remember because you're at a Baptist church, and so they're easy to remember. They all begin with the word be. There's five of them. We're going to go over each of these bees, the five bees, if you will. The first one is be humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That commandment of humble yourselves or practice humility is the connection between this part of the letter and the previous part of the letter. Pastor John preached last week about, I'd say, a very, very well-informed theology from the scriptures of elder leadership in many different ways, connecting some of the Old Testament and the New Testament and leading forward into this idea of an elder-led church and the commandments in that of how that is supposed to be structured. And he ended it off in verse 5. Where it says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then we get into this passage, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. When we go through difficulties and trials in life, one of, the, one of those gut reactions, that cornered reaction that we can have is practice our own sort of selfishness, sort of a, a self-preservation gut instinct where when we're suffering, our first desire is to get away from that suffering as quickly as possible, sometimes at the expense of someone or something, right? Right? And yet here, Peter is warning, instead of doing that, humble yourselves. And then in verse 5, there's a connection between humility and the commandment, which was to submit. We talked about submission quite a bit through 1 Peter, some of these different submission commandments. And I never noticed this until I, I, I looked at this passage, is that there is a very intimate relationship and connection between humility and submission. I would say, based on just knowing culture that we live in, humility is one of those virtues that, you know, we all kind of are like, I hope people see us as humble, but the moment you say you're humble, you're not really too humble, are you? It's kind of one of those funny, weird little virtues. But that is a virtue that, at least outside of the church in our culture in the United States, humility is a good thing. You want to be known as humble. You want to be humble. You want others to think that you are 
humble. But how many of us want others to know us as being submissive? How many of us, that, that, that has a negative sound to it, doesn't it? Humility, yeah, that sounds great. I want to be humble, but submissive, uh, that doesn't sound, doesn't sound too good. But the more that I look at this relationship and I realize is that humility and submission are very, very necessarily similar. We cannot be humble if we are unwilling to submit. We cannot practice humility, which definition of humility is preferring the interests of others over yourself, putting others above you. Submission, in many different ways, is the same thing. Submitting yourself, putting yourself under somebody else, preferring somebody else, they sound like very similar definitions in my mind when I think of them. We all desire humility, and yet we many times fear being known as submissive. God is here telling us you can't have one without the other. Now here he's telling us to submit ourselves to the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. There's this command and then there's this promise that is linked with this. Is that the, that, and it sounds like it doesn't make sense. I humble myself so I may be exalted? Sounds like it kind of has an agenda to it. I'm going to treat myself lowly so that one day I'll be elevated, right? It's a little bit confusing. But I think what's going on here is that God himself is saying, it's not your job to elevate yourself. It's not your job to make your, give yourself worth. That's God's job. Anytime I go around and say, I'm, I, I, look at what I can do. I can do this. It's like, okay, well, that's not very humble. But if somebody says, hey, this person's very talented in this, there is a selfless thing that's happening there, even if there is an exalting. And so it's true with this promise for us today. Going back to that gut reaction that we have where we can fall into this selfishness, there's several examples that we see around us, and I even can see in different movies and whatever else. I'm going to, just a minor tangent. When I was growing up, I really, and this, I think that there's a moment of this self-preservation gut reaction that we see in different movies or whatever else. And me growing up, I didn't have the best taste of movies, and so I watched a lot of uh, zombie apocalypse movies. I know, right? I kind of have classified zombie apocalypse movies as the Hallmark movies for dudes. Like, if you've watched one, you've kind of seen them all. You know, they all have this weird infection that infects all of the world, and there's a few survivors. And, and in that, there is this almost always, again, if you've seen one, you've seen them all, there's almost always this moment where some sort of survivor has to ask themselves the question, do I try to help somebody else who's in danger, or do I protect myself? Do I try to go and help somebody else when I'm having struggles, or do I just stick to myself? It's easy to poke and make fun of because a lot of those movies are not good movies. But how much so do we have to be challenged by that every single day? 
If I'm going through struggles, it's easy for me to say, no, I'm suffering, I can step back, I don't need to worry about helping others right now. I need to take care of myself right now, right? Yet is that what we are commanded to do? How much greater of a testimony is it for those in suffering to say, I'm still putting other people first. I'm still trusting in God's plan and living that out by putting others first, even when life is hard for me right now. Be humble. That's our first B. What's our second B? Second B is found in verse 7. Verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The second B is to be at peace. One of the other things that we can do, one of those other gut reactions we can do as we go through crises is we can let our anxieties control us in many different ways. We can let the fear that we feel, the lack of control that we feel, decide our actions versus having control over our actions. And we're not really set up well in a world today to avoid anxieties because in many different ways, we don't have to look far to find things that can make us nervous. In fact, we have a whole media system that is built on that. Fear is an excellent motivator. Fear is an excellent motivator. And the church has fallen prey to this as well, right? The church has done this. Pardon my, pardon, pardon the, the silliness of this, but scaring the hell, literal place, out of them. For many, it was an evangelistic technique. Has it produced long-term fruits? I would, I'd be, I'd be suspicious. Fear is an excellent motivator. But here the challenge directly is casting our anxieties on him, being God because he cares for you. I love the way that this is, sp- that this is written down. Peter uses very good word choices in this passage. I love it. I love it. I'm a, I'm a weird word nerd with this sort of stuff. This is great. He says, casting your anxieties on him, on God, because God cares for you. Notice here that Peter doesn't appeal to God's sense of sovereignty, being in control, which is absolutely true. It doesn't appear to of God's authority. God is in charge, which is absolutely true. He doesn't appeal to those different characteristics of God that the scriptures affirm. No, he appeals to a relational characteristic of God. You don't cast your anxieties on him for other reasons, but in this passage, because God cares for you. God has your best interests in mind. He may not have your your specific fallen interests in mind, but he has your best interests in mind. I love that. I love this relational characteristic of God that Peter reminds us of. Is God in control and authoritative over all of creation? Yes, absolutely. Amen. We'll affirm that. But here, Peter's saying, look, this is not a God that is distant from you. This is not a God that doesn't care about what's going on in your life. This is not a God that is just just doing his own thing and, and looking at you indifferently. This is a God that actively cares and desires to have 
a relationship with you through the death of his son, Jesus. And yet, our anxieties control us almost every day. And yet, we have this promise, though we still turn to other means of false senses of control. We all do this. We all have something that we go to when we feel like life's out of control because it gives us this minuscule, meaning of meaningless control that we have. We all do this in different ways. Another story here. I, growing up, I never understood why guys, and this isn't just guys, this is specific, this is generalized here, why guys like to go and work on projects. I never understood it. I, was, I grew up and, you know, you don't have to look at me to see I'm not much of a construction person or a handyman sort of thing. I can, make, I can, I can take care of myself, but I never understood it. Growing up, my dad, he was able to, to, to fix up our basement and work on our house and spend hours out in the garage working on cars. He put a new motor in one of his cars. He, he could do all that stuff. And as a kid, he was excited. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to show my son how to do this. And me, I was like, this is boring. I don't like, this isn't fun. But my dad loved it. Sometimes he'd force me to do it, and I'm grateful for it now. But I, even now, it's not something I necessarily enjoy. I never understood it, because I know he's not alone. But then I think I've started to understand when I have my own project to work on. Over the last couple of months, uh, my wife and I and uh, my in-laws and my, my, my family, kind of a whole family endeavor. We've been flipping a house for us to be able to move into. It's been a very long and strenuous process with a lot of different decisions and minute details, you know, all the things that I really enjoy. Not at all. And I, I, it's not something I enjoy, but I know I got to do it, right? And so I would show up on a, on a, on a day where you know, normally I get to sleep in and have my day off. And, oh, I got to go into work on the house today. And so I'd get up and get around and get going and go. And I go, okay, what are we doing today? And someone says, well, we got to put up a, we got to tear down a wall and put up a new skid. And I'd say, okay, what's a skid? just because I don't know anything. And so I'd learn how to do it and work, work on it all day. And, and, and at the end of the day, I could look and I could see the completed project. And, I, and there's, there's, there's this thing that happened to me when I went, whoa, I did that. That's kind of cool. I think I get it now. There is this sense of accomplishment that can come from that. But there can also be this sense of, I got this. I can do this. I can build that. Accomplishment may not necessarily be a bad thing, but control to a point of avoiding casting anxieties on God because I can control this, that is when you can get into dangerous territories. Very dangerous territories. And guys aren't alone in this, but I think I can pick on guys because I am one. And it made a little bit more sense why whenever uh, me and my, my wife is sharing with me something that's happened in her day and I'm trying to solve her problems, she doesn't want me to. I'm trying to control it. I can fix this. I can solve this. I can be in control because everything else in my life can feel out of control. 
We all do this in different ways. This isn't just a guy thing. Ladies do this in different ways as well, but I do not have the context to be able to share some of that stuff. So, with that being said, we all look for ways to have tiny little controls. I can't control the world. I can't control, you know, the security of my job. I can't control the salvation of my family members, but I can control this. I can't control the direction of the world. I can't control the direction of this or that or the other thing, but I can do this, and I can hold on to this. And this can become my satisfaction. This can become my God. When here the scriptures warn, don't hang on to control. Don't get meaning off that control. Instead, your meaning can be giving that control away completely to the God who's in control of everything. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, I'm not saying you can't work on projects. But what I am saying is that how many times do we seek to control little things in our lives because we're not giving away the big things to God? Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be at peace. The third warning, the third B, is found in verse 8. It's a fairly famous verse. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The third B is be prepared. When we go through crises, when we go through trials, it's easy for us to point fingers, right? It's easy for us to blame others, right? Because of this, I'm stuck in this situation. Because of that person, I've got to deal with this now. Maybe because I messed up, I've got to deal with this now. We point fingers in order to give, again, this, this sort of thought of control, to, in order to, at least, okay, at least I know what to be mad at now. And I think Peter is wise here to say, yes, there is a root of your trials. Yes, there is a root, there is an enemy, but that enemy is the devil. The devil, the author of evil, the sole reason that sin and suffering could even exist in the first place and tempt man, for now we're stuck in this mess. Now, man did still sin against God, and that is still man's responsibility. But the devil is, in many ways, that author of evil, that beginning of evil that brought it to this world through our unfaithfulness. And so Peter is wise here to mention an enemy. And if you think about it, there's a lot of people that Peter could have mentioned your adversary was for the Christians in this time, right? Your adversary, the Roman Empire. Your adversary, the, the Jewish peoples that are persecuting you. Your adversary, the Greeks. Your adversaries, the, the barbarians that are a few miles west. East, sorry. There's a lot of people that the Christians could have blamed at that time. There's a lot of things the Christians could have blamed at that time as their enemies. And yet Peter is saying, you have one, yes, be careful, be watchful, but know who your enemy is. That is the devil himself who seeks nothing more than to destroy you. Many times Christians have messed up who their enemy is. Sometimes we point at people. 
Sometimes we point at ideas. Sometimes we point at nations. Sometimes we even point at each other. What can happen when we point at the wrong enemy? When we're watchful of the wrong enemy? Let me give a silly example, and then let me give a serious one after that. Around this time, actually, I'm a, I love history, and so I love learning about different kinds of history. There was a, a Roman emperor. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Nero. It might have been another guy. But there was a Roman emperor that decided that he needed, and this is absolutely true. You can go look this up. That he needed to declare war on the Roman pantheon's god of the sea that we would think of as Poseidon, or Neptune was the Roman name. He declared war as a dude in the Roman Empire on the sea god. You're like, okay, this is kind of weird. Well, not only did he declare war on him, he gathered a military, he conscripted soldiers, he gathered his materials, he marched himself to the sea, and he commanded his army to start poking the water with his spears in order to fight the enemy. We hear that today, and we kind of, we laugh, right? We're like, what are you doing? That's foolish. What are you doing? And yet, how foolish do we look when we mislabel who our enemy is? Let me give another example. In 1918, at the height, one of the heights of the First World War, the American soldiers living in, in, in France for one of their first experiences of combat in the First World War found themselves in the town of, this is a French name, and I'm not going to get it right, so forgive me, I don't know French, Chateau Thierry. I don't know. Chateau Thierry. And the American soldiers were there with their, their French allies and fighting against the Germans in an effort to push them back to the lands of Germany. And there was one specific night, in the middle of the night, the Americans were on their trenched side of the front and they could hear the enemies approaching them. And so they, they get their defenses ready, they pick up their, their rifles and their machine guns and they began to repel the attacks of their enemies and they were successful in doing so the enemies were not able to make it and overtake their trenches. It was an American victory. They waited through the rest of the evening. They woke up the next morning, and they went out onto the field, carefully, I had to be careful, it was no man's land, to collect the bodies or do whatever they needed to do, and they were horrified to discover that they did not kill any Germans. They killed their retreating French allies that were coming back from an attack a few days earlier. They didn't know who their enemy was. And they paid horribly, ending in the result of a battalion of soldiers lost, which, in case you're wondering, a battalion can range anywhere from five to 15,000 soldiers. There's no official death count, but somewhere in when we mislabel enemies, when we don't know who the real enemy is, the devil, we spend a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of effort, a lot of strength, a lot of emotional strength, 
wasted on the wrong thing. And the worst part of that is that that gives the real enemy, the devil, your adversary, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, it gives him a foothold. Right? Be prepared. There is an enemy. Be prepared. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. But know who that enemy is. That is the devil. That is our enemy. Whom is seeking someone to be devoured. Be prepared. The fourth B. Verse 9. Says this. Resist him, being the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The fourth B is be encouraged. This kind of bleeds into a little bit of the previous point, because when we recognize our brothers and sisters in Christ as very necessary allies... We recognize that, that God has instituted such a beautiful design for his church that can help us when we, uh, when we do another, have another gut reaction when we are in times of trial. Is there anybody else, and I know that I do this, is there anybody else that when you're in times of crises or trial that you feel lonely? That you feel isolated? You feel like nobody else is there to help you. You're on your own. You're stuck and there's nothing that anybody else can do to help. Either because there's nobody there or they just don't understand what you're going through. There's some of that line of thinking that I can't, that I think I would challenge. But here it says, resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. God has given us a system, that being his church, to be able to lean on when our faith is weak. Do you feel connected with God? Do you feel isolated? Do you feel, you, are, you, are you struggling to hold your faith with God? Are you doubting? Are you having issues with, with, you know, is God even real? Can I hang on to this? What can I do? I don't know if I believe in this anymore. I don't know what's going on. One of my questions is, are you connected with other believers? Because we aren't designed to hold our faith on our own. We aren't designed to do this Christian life by ourselves. We are designed to be in community with people, with other believers who are supposed to bear our burdens when we're faltering and we're supposed to bear their burdens when they are faltering. Are you connected with other believers? Are you relying and asking and, and pleading with others saying, help me, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, I need some help right now? That's a part we can control. If you're feeling isolated, my best encouragement is get connected. Find a life group. Come together and grow on Wednesday nights. Be with the body. That's where we're supposed to be. Let others help you, and you help others. Because not only does that 
work in a sense of someone bearing my burdens, but it works in a sense of me learning that God is so much bigger than what's happening in my own brain, my own, my own imperfect interpretation of God can be faulty. I am a sinful person. But if I see God's experiences working through other people and I see that God is working, God is growing, his kingdom is advancing, and it doesn't all have to happen to me, I can see it in other places in the world. The same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the entire world. The Christians that Peter is writing to are not alone, even if they feel isolated. We are not alone, even if you feel isolated. And we would be wise to look to the testimonies of other ways that God is working throughout the world to hear some of our missionaries responding and saying that God is growing. Be encouraged. That God's kingdom is advancing in other places in the world. Churches are being planted. Be encouraged. People are coming to Christ in the craziest of ways. Be encouraged. Even in the States today, I don't know if anybody's seen some of the news, but there are college campuses that are having worship services for days on end. A lot of people are throwing out crazy things and whatever else, and I don't know what's going on. God's doing something. Be encouraged. God is working. It's easy for us to get stuck in our own personal bubble and say, God's, what's, God's, God's distant. God's not doing anything. I'm telling you to burst that bubble. Look outside of yourself. Look outside of this church. Look outside of whatever your sphere of influence is and see how God's kingdom is growing in a way that we could never possibly imagine, but that we can be grounded and built up in our faith and give that glory back to God. Be encouraged. The final B, verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I would say one of the quickest things that we do when we go through times of trial. And that, that cornered feeling hits. One of the quickest things we do is we forget what God has said he's going to do. We can be here on Sunday mornings and say that it is well with my soul. Thank you, worship team, by the way, for leading us this morning. We can sing his mercy is more. We can sing all of these things, but how easy is it to forget an hour later when we're angry because of a traffic issue? How easy is it when a couple of hours later we're reading the news or on Facebook and something discourages us or we say something we wish we hadn't? How easy is it for us to forget the promises of God when the pressure sets in? And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, all love, all care, who has called you 
to his eternal glory, who has brought you salvation through the Son of God, Jesus, from his death on the cross, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is an act of God himself. This isn't something that is handed off. This is something God himself does, that after we have suffered a little while, God himself restores, confirms, strengthens, and establishes you, you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I I really like verse 10. I like all these verses, but I like verse 10. Because verse 10, in many ways, sums up what we've been trying to communicate through 1 Peter this whole time. What's been our theme? Go ahead, talk. What? That's okay. Holy living in the midst of suffering. It's one of those things you say it in a classroom. And, oh, 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 I get it, I get it. Holiness in the midst of suffering. Isn't that what's happening in verse 10? After you have suffered a little while... That's the suffering part. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Is that not holiness? Restoring us, giving us us help and hope through after we've gone through these times of suffering. Confirming us. Recognizing the path that we've gone on. Recognizing the journey that we've gone through. Trusting in him. Strengthening us. Building us up. Helping our faith to be more secure in the God that died for you. And establishing us. Giving us that firm foundation. that, that, That testimony of a journey in which God was faithful. Though you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Holiness in the midst of suffering. I look at that passage and I see that happening In the real world, many times we see passages like that. We're saying, oh, well, that's when Jesus comes back. I don't know if that's what's happening here. I think that this is an active event in which we go through every single day or when we go through times of suffering and we grow closer to God through holiness. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love that reminder. He says the dominion. Many times we see to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And yes, all glory to God. But here, Peter mentions dominion. See, I love the word choices he uses here. He appeals to God's dominion, God's control, God's kingship, God's authority. The fact that God is ruling. God's got this thing under control. Maybe hard to believe, but God's got this thing under control. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When is it hard for you to remember God's promises? What are those times in your life? What events happen that make you doubt? What stresses come up that make you question? What circumstances happen that make you forget? And find a way to keep those promises in the forefront of your mind so that in those times of sorrows, you have something to hold on to. You have a a, a light in the midst of that dark time in life. What does that look like? 
Those are our five B's. Be humble, be at peace, be prepared, be encouraged, and be looking forward. The letter ends with some greetings. This is kind of one of those, this is that part in the letter where it's, here's all the theologies, here's all the ways you're doing it wrong, here's how you can do it better. Oh, and by the way, these people say hi. Letters were weird back 2,000 years ago. But these people had no way of connecting with each other. They had no idea how Silvanus was doing, which, by the way, Silvanus more than likely was Silas, who joined Paul in some of his missionary journeys. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, there's different ideas of who that is. It's some lady who more than likely was in Rome. If we remember back in chapter 1, Peter refers to Babylon. More than likely, that was Rome. Connection to Old Testament and Babylon taking the Israelites out of, out of uh, Israel. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. More than likely, John, Mark, the individual. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Cultural thing, just going to breeze over that one. Some of you took a little longer to think on that one. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I love that the last command here is peace. In a world that is nothing, that is anything but, in a future that is anything but, have peace. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's so many great little nuggets at the end of this, path, of this book. And I love verse 12 where, it, again, it kind of it reminds us of the purpose of this book. I have written briefly to exhorting and declaring that this, holiness in the midst of suffering, is the true grace of God, the true gift of God. Definition of grace is getting something you don't deserve. This message is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm. I love that the Bible is real for several reasons, but I love that it brings us face-to-face with real-life issues, real-life heartaches, real-life hurts. The Bible doesn't, doesn't try to make it easier to read. It's, it's, it's brutally honest in many places. It doesn't leave us in the dark of what's going on with the suffering in our lives. God is working through our sufferings. And one day our sufferings will come into an end when Jesus returns. But until then, we have a responsibility to ourselves and others to work through the sufferings we encounter. And from that, God brings us closer to himself. That is one of our answers for how do I get through? What is the point of all of this suffering? What is the point of all of this evil? One of the answers is so we can learn how much more we need God and grow more and more in love with him because he's been faithful and he will be faithful. In the, uh, the prayer meeting this morning, um, for anyone that's interested, half an hour before the service starts, there's a prayer meeting that happens in the fellowship hall, by the way. It's a really good time. But this morning, one of the individuals there said, it's hard to end something like this. And I think I would agree. It's hard. How do you end something like this? It's difficult. 
But one thing I would say, and I would appeal to verse 12, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. These are the promises of God given to us to help us through the struggles that we encounter in life each and every day. This can be your help. The question is, are you willing to trust in what God has said? Are you willing to stop and to think when those cornered moments happen, when we feel the pressure to give in to those gut reactions of, of, of selfishness and anxiety and, and, and wrong labeling and, and, and missing out on God's, forgetting God's promises, feeling isolated? Are we willing to stop and to say, no, I'm not doing that this time. I'm going to do what God says I should do. Stand firm. This is the true grace of God.